0: Well, I hope you uh, were considering the words that you were singing earlier. Lord, make me Christ-like whatever it takes. That's some pretty strong words that we prayed through song, and I hope that you meant that from your heart. Well, tonight I want to begin an 11-week study in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So would you turn there with me? 1 Thessalonians. Um, I, I enjoy beginnings. Uh, I always enjoy the first part of a school year, start back up, new class, new new concepts. Um, and uh, sometimes at the end of the year, you're kind of looking forward to being done. And perhaps that's the way it was with our study through Genesis. But we have a new beginning now in 1 Thessalonians, and I'm happy to, uh, to take us through this together. One thing that uh, Paul, not the Apostle, and I were compelled to do while we were on our trip in South America was uh, was change our perspective, and you're going to see that in our uh, presentation this Friday. It's all the differences in the culture, and the millions of people, and the language differences, and being, you know, 6,000 miles away from home, and and the powerful waterfalls in Brazil. Uh, it, it it's it compels you to alter your perspective on life. And our hope and prayer is that when we show or present to you what happens, what is going on down there, what, what we're able to see, that you will have a different perspective as well. And uh, that's, that's our goal. And perspective is important, isn't it? Because if you have the wrong perspective on something, then, then you can uh, be frustrated or even distressed about unimportant things. Okay, like the proverbial, proverbial spill, glass of spilled milk, right? You know, we can get so frustrated over something so small, and even that can be a breaking point for us that we just explode in anger because of something so insignificant. And 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 if we have a nearsighted perspective, then we also will sorrow over the death of a loved one if we're thinking in terms of just what is happening here and now, we will sorrow in an ungodly way over the death of even a saint, a believer. And, um, and so perspective is important in that way as well. If you have a wrong perspective, then you will be in despair or depression because of the outcome of any given election or anything that shows up in the news. But if you have a proper perspective, then you won't be shaken by the polls or the current events or by the evil that's in the world, or the loss of your job, or the lack of money, or the family struggles, or or missed opportunities, or anything because you have perspective. You have the right kind of perspective. A godly perspective. And the book of 1 Thessalonians is all about perspective. The Thessalonians are the target of intense opposition and physical and verbal persecution. And if their eyes are fixed on their circumstances, on the people around them, then they will quickly falter. But Paul is thankful, the Apostle this time, that they are fixing their hope on Christ, and he encourages them to do it even more. So, we want to just survey the book tonight. I want to introduce it to you, show you uh, why it was written and so on, and who wrote it. And um, and then we'll get into some detailed study of each section of the book in the next ten weeks after tonight. Okay, so let's begin with the author and the date, as I often do when we introduce a book. We see the author in chapter one, verse one. Very simple. Uh, in fact, let's let's read the first chapter of First Thessalonians and. Uh, See, just get an idea of what this book is about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'll read the first chapter. This is the Word of God. Paul and Silvanus, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned God from idols to serve a living and a true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We'd, there's no argument over who the author is of, um, of the book of 1 Thessalonians. But let me just show you quickly in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Sylvanus or Silas. This is his ministry partner. We'll see this here when we uh, look at the background of this book. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet, Satan hindered us. Okay? The three of us, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, we wanted to come to you, Thessalonians. We wanted to see how you were doing spiritually. And then he says, I, Paul. So he clearly shows that he is the author of this, of this small letter to the Thessalonians. Paul had gone from Thessalonica to Berea. He first went and spread the Gospel there in this region on his second missionary journey. He went to Berea. There he was persecuted, just like he was in Thessalonica. But when he was in Berea, he left Timothy and Silas there in Berea, and Paul headed on to Athens. And after he preached there, he went on to Corinth. But he wanted to know what was going on in Thessalonica, so he sends Timothy back to the, Thess- to the city of Thessalonica, and that's where Paul writes the book. He's in Corinth. Timothy comes back with a report. And Paul writes this first letter to the Thessalonians in A.D. 51. Chronologically, this is the second letter that Paul has written that's included in our canon in, in the New Testament. The first one was Galatians in A.D. 49, two years earlier. On his first missionary journey, he wrote that letter to the Galatians. We need to understand a little bit about the city of Thessalonica. It was founded in 315 B.C. by General Cassander... This general uh, named it after his wife who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. The city was on a major trade route. If you turn to the very last map in your Bible, you can see this city. It's uh, just north of the Aegean Sea. If you don't have a, a map on Paul's first, second, and third missionary journey, you can just find one there of... Uh, of uh, of the, the Asia Minor area. If you can find the Asia, uh, Aegean Sea or if you can find the boot of Italy, you're going to go north from the heel of the boot. Macedonia's to the east and then uh, and, and to the north. Thessalonica is there right on the coast. And you see it's an, at, a, at a, a really important part. Uh, it's a, at an important area of the trade route because there was a a route that went from the Ignatian Way all the way to the Black Sea. Okay, So from from the east, if you can find the, the Black Sea that's in the north there, there's a little canal that goes through there. And then that goes all the way across along the coast to the Adriatic Sea on the west. And so right here in the middle you have this great spot for trading. Why? Because you have people that can come from the south and the Aegean Sea or you have people that can be traveling by foot on land and they come to Thessalonica and this is a great place for a lot of trade to take place. As a result, it was a very wealthy city because of its great position, much like New York and many of the large cities in the world are in just strategic locations geographically, aren't they? And that's the way it is here with this city. And it was probably a city that was Populated by 150 to 200,000 people, which is pretty significant in those days, and it contained mostly Gentiles, but also there were Romans and Jews and even some Orientals. Ethnically, they were very diverse, and as a result, uh, you can imagine that there were a pantheon of gods, that there were a number of gods that were worshipped in that area. So what do we know about the church at Thessalonica? The best way to to see what, what is going on with the church, what we know about its history, is to go back to the book of Acts. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 17. And this is a part of, as I said, Paul's second missionary journey when he goes to Thessalonica for the first time. We find out the history of this church. Acts chapter 17. This church was found only a year earlier Then when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote the letter in A.D. 51. The church was founded in A.D. 50 on Paul's second missionary journey. Remember, this is after Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement over John Mark, whether they should take John Mark with them. Barnabas says, we should take him. Let's give him another chance. And Paul says, no, we're not. He deserted us. Why would he not do it again? And so Paul leaves with Silas and eventually picks up Timothy and Barnabas and Uh, Barnabas and Mark go on to Cyprus so that's where we are in the history of the book of Acts and so let's read chapter 17 verses 1 through 9 Acts 17 verse 1 now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and according to Paul's custom he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So, it sounds like from the text, notice verse 2, that Paul was there for how long? Notice, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths. So, about how long would that be? Three weeks, right? Three Saturdays. That's what Sabbath means. So, it sounds like he was only there for three weeks. Maybe 21 days. Maybe as many as 25 or 26 days. We don't know. But let me try to explain to you what's going on in the book of Acts, because... Uh, I believe that that he was there longer than those three weeks. In verses one through four, Paul, as what was his custom, went where first when he came to a city, to the synagogue. In fact, when he would come to cities that didn't have synagogues, he would pass on and go somewhere else. Why did he not care about the Gentiles? No, Paul says, I'm the missionary to the Gentiles. I'm the one taking the gospel to the Gentiles. This was just his his strategy of reaching people. He would reach both Jews and Greeks this way. And uh, so when he would go to the synagogue, he would come across many well-versed Jews and knowledgeable Greeks in the Scriptures and according to this verse, verse uh, uh, 4, some leading women, right? See, at the end of the verse, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Okay, so apparently these people come to Christ. They accept Jesus Christ, the message that Paul is bringing. But then, verse four, verse 5, there's a riot. The Jews are not happy about this and they capture Jason and a few others and bring them before the, the leaders of this city that's now free. They, these leaders are called polytarchs. The city's officials or governors, basically, we could think of them as. And Jason and other Jason and the others in verse 9, are freed after they apparently gave this pledge or maybe posted bail perhaps, or maybe they agreed that they would not bring about any more trouble to the city. They're not going to uh, continue to incite a, a riot through their actions. They would um, they would uh, settle down and, and remain in peace. So if that's all we had, Acts 17, then we would think that Paul were there for only three Saturdays because that's what the text says. But if we look at 1 Thessalonians and we look at Philippians, we have reason to believe that Paul was there longer than three weeks. And uh, let me give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, 1 Thessalonians tells us that he was there long enough to gain employment. He said, I did not cease working for you night and day while I was there in Thessalonica. It wouldn't make sense for him to come into a town and be there for only three weeks and still have a job. It seems as if he'd have to be there longer. Number two, the fact that many Gentiles were saved suggests that Paul was there long enough to work with them. And this was not unusual. You remember when he went to Ephesus, uh, he was banned from the synagogue, as Paul often is. He's banned from the synagogue very early in his, uh, his evangelization of the city. And so he goes to the Gentiles and spends several years, in fact, in Ephesus. So so uh, it's likely that he was there to work with the Gentiles for a longer period of time than the three weeks. Philippians 4.16, the third reason is, is that Paul says that they sent him support again and again while he was in Thessalonica. Philippians 4.16. And so this suggests that they found out about him being there and that he was there long enough for them to send him a gift multiple times. Okay, so there's a third reason why perhaps he was there longer than three weeks. And then finally, uh, the riot and the forcing of Paul, Silas, and Timothy out didn't necessarily happen after the third week. In other words, it didn't necessarily happen immediately after the third week. He's in the synagogue for thir- three weeks, and then they said, "You know what? We have enough. We'd ha- we've had enough with this. Get out." That would uh, it, it actually makes more sense that the Jews' anger was stirred over a longer period of time. That yes, they saw Him in the synagogue preaching for these three weeks, but there's not a whole lot of visible uh, transformation that's going on in the people. But as time went on, as He has time to work with the Gentiles, let's say, perhaps over a period of several months, then the Jews see the following that he's gaining. Of course, they're jealous of that. They don't want people to follow Paul. They want them to follow them. And ultimately, they weren't following Paul, by the way. They were following Christ. And um, so the only action that they could do, they couldn't force him out of the synagogue at that point because he had already been forced out. The only action that the Jews can do is the same action that they brought upon our Savior. And that is to incite a riot among the people. Try to remove them another way. And that's why I think in verse 9 of Acts 17, that pledge that Jason made was likely to say, you know, we're not going to further incite the crowd. So Paul was probably there at this original church at Thessalonica for several months, perhaps up to six months, working with these people, establishing a base, But even after he left, as he often was, he's concerned about uh, their progress spiritually. Were they understanding the truth that was taught to them about the Gospel? Was the Gospel really taking root? Which would be expressed how? In their works, right? It would be expressed in in their faithfulness, in their obedience. And uh, so Paul was concerned about that. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians Turn to chapter three this time, because we want to see why did Paul write this letter? Why did Paul write this letter? There are a couple of reasons why Paul wrote this letter according to this book, chapter three verses one through three. I just mentioned it, and it it is that Paul was eager to find out how this budding church was doing. Chapter three verse one. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Paul wanted to know what was going on. So, he sends Timothy. And then Timothy comes back and meets with him. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Now that Timothy has come to us from You and has brought us good news of Your faith and love and that You always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see You. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about You through Your faith. For now we really live if You stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for You in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on Your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see Your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So the occasion for the reason why Paul writes this letter is because he he wanted to find out how they were doing. And once he finds out from Timothy, he's encouraged by it. And he wants to, as he says here in verse 10, he wants to continue to encourage them in their faith. He wants them to continue in their faith. And he wants to continue, and he wants to supply, as he says here, what is lacking in their faith. And so Paul is writing to encourage them, but also he's writing to uh, clarify some misunderstandings about the coming of the Lord. In chapter four, verses thirteen through eighteen, he says, "Now about the things uh, about those who fall asleep—that is, about believers who die. Let me explain to you what's going to happen. The Lord's going to come with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You remember the passage, right?" He's trying to clarify because they thought, oh no, Christ hasn't come, but these believers have died. What's going to happen to them? And then in chapter 5, verses 1-11, through He explains to them how the day of the Lord is going to work and how believers are going to be protected from the wrath to come. So He's explaining or clarifying some misunderstandings. Remember, in such a short period of time, He can't explain all of the implications or all the doctrines of Scripture. He simply tries to Give them an overview of the counsel of God and then moves on to another place. What is this book about? What is the theme of this book? Well, the most prominent topic in the book, I would suggest to you, is the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. The reason I say that is because each chapter includes a reminder of the future coming of the Lord. Don't be alarmed that Christ is coming. Okay, be prepared for His coming. That's the main topic in every chapter in the book. Paul talks about the coming of the Lord. So Paul asserts that the Lord is coming, but he uses it as motivation for them to live holy lives. In other words, because the Lord is coming, you ought to live holy lives. Prepare yourself, or we say it this way, prepare yourself for. For the coming of the Lord by living holy lives. And so I would uh, put it to you this way The Lord is coming, so be prepared by sanctifying yourself. The Lord is coming, so be prepared by sanctifying yourself. Now we need to explain each one of those sections, but the first part is The Lord is coming, so we must be prepared. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. The Lord is coming. We must be prepared. He's talking about them, how they turned to God from idols, served living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. We must be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Otherwise, if we're not rescued from the wrath to come, what's the other option? Then we're destined for the wrath to come. Right? So we... We need to be ready for it, is the idea. And if we're not prepared, look at chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16, then the wrath of God will come upon us, just like it comes on all pagans. Verse 16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. We must be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. For who is our hope, or joy, or crown, or exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul says, you know, we are preparing ourselves for that day when we will stand before the Lord. And at the end of chapter 4, he talks about believers who will die. That is... That believers are prepared when they die, they are prepared for the for the uh, for their standing before the Lord. In chapter five, verses one and two, he says that the Lord will come like a what? Like a thief in the night. Now, the idea is not that he's stealing something, but what does the thief do? He comes at an unexpected time. If he were expected, then he wouldn't be able to steal anything. And that's the that's the point of comparison there. Don't take it too far. But understand the point of comparison. Just like a thief comes unexpectedly, so Christ is going to come unexpectedly. So here's the point. Be prepared for His coming. And then chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, those who are being sanctified are those who are prepared for the coming of the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy in which we rejoice before our God in your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your faith, faith and may complete what is lacking in your faith. And verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Verse 13 really is the critical verse that I want to, to point our attention to. That, that He may establish our hearts without blame and holiness so that we're prepared to stand before God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Christ is coming, so we must be prepared. And the way that we're prepared is by living holy lives. It involves our Sanctification. Sanctify means to be set apart. That's what holy is, holiness is. It's simply another word. And this should not be surprising that we should spend our lives and be spent in a pursuit of holiness. If we want to be prepared for the coming of the Lord, we need to spend our lives in the pursuit of holiness. Why? In chapter 1 verse 9 says that we were called out of the world. So that means we must live differently from the world. And when we do, we will ex- we should expect persecution, like in chapter 3 verses 4, 7 and 8. We should expect persecution. That there will pe- be people who will not endure such holy living. Will be uh will be hateful toward us because of our desire to do what is right and so we need to involve ourselves in sanctification even if it means persecution and then look at chapter 4 verse 18 we should take joy in the coming of christ and we should comfort one another with these words see that therefore comfort one another with these words and then chapter um chapter 5, verse 11, after he talks about the day of the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another just as you are doing. So we should be encouraged by the coming of the Lord and what that means for us. For believers, it's not something that we dread and are fearful about, but it's something that we look forward to and we desire and we pray for. So we must and I'm going to put it like this. We must sanctify ourselves, but we ultimately have to recognize the sanctification comes from whom? It comes from God. That God is ultimately the one who sanctifies us. Look uh, again at chapter 11, verse 13. Speaking of God, Paul says, "...so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness." Chapter 4, verse 9, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately recognize, yes, you have responsibility to sanctify yourselves, to be holy as God is holy, but remember that God is the one who sanctifies us. God is the one who makes us holy. But the danger in thinking only in those terms that God is the one who makes us holy is that we can take that to an extreme, a wrong extreme, and say, well, then I don't have to do anything. God, If it's all God's job then I'm going to just let Him do it. And I would argue that you need to understand it that way, that God is the one who sanctifies. But keep in mind that God always uses means to accomplish His purpose. God can often do things apart from uh, human means. He can do things apart from us in a miraculous way. He could do that if He wanted to. But in our era, I believe God always uses means. That is, that our sanctification comes through hard work. It comes through each of us encouraging one another. This verse I've been quoting from Hebrews chapter 3, as long as it's called today. Why? So that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews says later, I think it's in chapter 10, without holiness or without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Not one person. Now is that the means? Is that the reason that God accepts us? Is it the reason that God will only accept us because of our works? That's not what Hebrews is saying. It's saying that those in whom God has worked, He will do the work of sanctification, and all who are sanctified will see the Lord. All who are not sanctified were never transformed by God. without holiness, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. So our job is to be sanctified. How do we do this? Look at chapter 5, verse 19. I think this is a great way that Paul explains how we ought to do this. Very simple verse, but very profound. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit, is what Paul is saying. In other words, be complicit with what the Spirit is working in you to do. What is the Spirit's ultimate goal in you? It is not to give you a better house or more money or a perfect family. It is to sanctify you, to make you more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being transformed from one level of glory to the next by the Lord, the Spirit. As we look into the mirror of the Word, the text says, we are being transformed. This is what the Spirit wants to do in us. If you read through Romans chapter 8, you will see that throughout. That God's primary desire for you is your good, and your greatest good is your sanctification. It is your growth in godliness. The greatest thing that God can do in your life is to make you more like Christ and to continue to make you more like Christ. Not to solve all of your your, um, temporal problems. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So, Paul's saying that Christ is coming and that we must be prepared by sanctifying ourselves. Or another way to say it is by being complicit with the work of the Spirit in our life. How is your perspective? Is it focused on the here and now? Are you looking for uh, what's going to happen tomorrow or next week at your job or in your family? Are you looking... With a greater perspective, I'm not saying that it's wrong to plan. It's not wrong to think about things that are going to happen in the near future or even today. But our ultimate, uh, our ultimate gaze must be fixed on the Lord's coming, on the life to come. Do you recognize that Christ come, could come at any time? As Christians, our job is to be ready. And if we're going to be ready, then we need to be sanctified. Sanctification is a work that God does through His Spirit. And the Spirit, I would suggest, never works apart from His Word. Don't expect to be sitting in your house and God to zap you. Or the Spirit to just enliven you you with, with more spiritual growth. The Spirit works in one way in our era, and that is through His Word. So if you're going to be changed, if you're going to be made into the image of Christ, if you're going to be sanctified, then the Spirit is doing that through your exposure to the Word. So that means being ready for the return of Christ means living a holy life that is consistent with what the Word of God said. Is the Word of God changing you? Is it altering the way that you live, your mindset, your values, your desires, your actions, your words? Is it changing you? Or did it change you a long time ago and now you have it all figured out? You know, uh, you use the Word of God like a dictionary. You know all the important words, the ones that you need. And whenever you need something that's Maybe you you don't understand in life you go to it the Bible is not a dead book it's not irrelevant. it is the very source of our spiritual lives and hebrews four twelve says that it is alive it is quick and powerful, living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces through to the dividing sunder of soul and spirit and it even is able to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's the scriptures, because the scriptures are empowered with the with this Holy Spirit who lives within us. So if we're going to be prepared for the Lord's coming, then we must be complicit to what the Spirit's working in us to do to transform us through His Word. Are you growing in holiness? Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ? Do you have the proper perspective?